This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. the whole of She-Ra and the Princesses of Power, which I can wow. strongly recommend. Amazing. <laughs> was that for work? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> that was just for pleasure. Where, where, do, where do you find such deep content? Uh, I find it on Netflix Children's. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, fantastic. But I'm not going to tell you, the treasures on Disney Plus are just unbelievably great. Absolutely amazing stuff. On uh, on Disney Plus, you, you know, are you a Mandalorian fan? Oh God, yes, yeah, it's marvelous, isn't absolutely it? Absolutely incredible. The greatest Herzog uh, performance ever. I it's think it's amazing. It's just proper good. I, Much better than it has any right to be. Proper good music I, as well. Yeah. I wonder. I wonder, John, if you could give us some clue as to how it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's just playing a baddie, you know. He's actually playing a character in the in the thing. I think he's a some kind of a gangster, some kind of. Um, yeah, it's, it's just it's just Werner. It's clearly Werner. It doesn't make makes no attempt to to be anything other than Werner Herzog, really. Yep. But yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. it's proper brilliance, proper good. It's, proper, it's joyous. Yeah. How did you feel about the big reveal when you saw what he looked like? Did that feel? Did you get to that point in the uh, series? I haven't seen all of it. No, because the Mandalorian he never takes his his mask off, and then he sure. does, and you're like, oh, mm. oh, that's not right. It's just some you guy. Know? <laughs> it's just some bloke. <laughs> That's a, that. That's we're now calling them because of my inability to type. We're now calling those things spoliers in our house. Spoliers. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, that won't be the last time you hear about Star Wars in this podcast. Oh, um, Una, where are you? Uh, I'm in Cambridge, uh, which is a, a city in the east of England. <laughs> I believe, because I haven't seen anything of it in about two months. I haven't been beyond my garden in two months. It's a lovely garden. Uh, but beyond it is uh, Cambridge, which I currently know only through Pokemon Go stops. So, uh... <laughs> Andrew, where are you? I'm in South Norwood in South London. I'm in my bedroom. You're in the, one of the literary hubs, aren't you there? Yeah, South Norwood. absolutely where Raymond Chandler lived and D.H. Lawrence lived. And um, Arthur Conan Doyle is about four houses away from this house as well, the house that Arthur Conan Doyle was born in as well. It's a bit of a dump. I, mean, I might not have been while he was... Uh, sorry, I hope no the person who lives in Arthur Conan Doyle's house isn't listening. So it's fine. It's an absolutely fine house, yeah. What a thought if they all lived in the same road at the same time. Stella Street. Mm. Uh, or Bloomsbury, yeah. Um, yes, <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today you find us in a forest, skeins of light dapple our skin and the sound of the Silver River fills our heads. We're driven by hunger and see pictures of fat grubs crawling from logs and green bowls pushing through the dark soil. But on the wind, there is a new smell and an unfamiliar sound. 
I'm John Mitchinson, publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund the books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And joining us today are multiple returnees, good eggs, and official friends of Backlisted, Dr. Una McCormack and Mr. Andrew Mayle. Yay! <laughs> Welcome back, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Marvellous. Um, Marvellous. Dr. Una McCormack is a New York Times and USA Today best-selling writer of science fiction. Her most recent novel, The Last Best Hope, is a spin-off from the TV series Star Trek Picard. She is particularly interested in women's science fiction, and this is her fifth appearance on Backlisted. Her previous episodes were number 30, Venetia by Georgette Heyer. Number 49, Look at Me by Anita Bruckner. Number 71, The Return of the King by J.R.R. Tolkien. And number 98, Ridley Walker by Russell Hoban. And uh, so, uh, Dr. McCorback, uh, you joined us to discuss the author of Lord of the Rings. You're here today to discuss the author of Lord of the Flies. And so when we do an episode about the work of Michael Flatley, <laughs> you'll, be, you'll, you'll be the first person we call. Well, I did Irish dancing as a little girl, so uh, you better have to call me, I think. Yeah. I think that would be the most amazing episode of Batlisted we ever did. <laughs> the river dance episode, yeah. 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 Interpretive dance for radio. Yeah. Ah, also joining us today is Andrew Mayle. Andrew is the senior associate editor of Mojo magazine and writes on TV, books and film for The Guardian, Sight and Sound and The Sunday Times. This is Andrew's sixth appearance on Batlisted, which we think is a record. Is that a record? I think it is a record. Oof. He joined us for episode 10, The High Window by Raymond Chandler, episode 24, Cold Hand in Mind by Robert Aikman, episode 52, We Have Always Lived in the Castle by Shirley Jackson, episode 78, Ghosts by Edith Wharton, and episode 104, The Breaking Point by Daphne du Maurier, these last four being Halloween specials. And he'll be back, back, back <laughs> later in the year for another <laughs> Halloween special. And in fact, we think Dr. McCormack too will be back later in the year to discuss um, an author. We, we can't reveal who that is yet, yeah. but we, you and I have discussed it, Una. Don't look like you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the penny has dropped. I've remembered. Jolly good. Yeah, I've, I've activated those brain cells. Yeah. And as is traditional on Andrew's appearances, if you've been listening to this podcast for <laughs> several years, you'll know we always try to remember to ask him this. Andrew, we're here to talk about The Inheritors by William Golding. If The Inheritors were a Gene Kelly film, which Gene <laughs> Kelly film would it be? Brigadoon, of course. Brigadoon, it would be Brigadoon. Mm. I thought, okay, right, okay. What we'll do is we'll come, you, yeah. we'll come back to that to your answer later on. Yes, because I know you're worried that if we discuss Brigadoon too early. It might give away the ending yeah. of The Inheritors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say Gene Kelly's film Inherit the Wind. Ooh. Because it's about a debate in a courtroom about whether man is or isn't descended from apes. I thought that was too obvious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you'd have been disappointed with that choice. I think Brigadoon is much, much better. Yeah, it's a brilliant choice. Yeah, we're here to talk about, uh, as Andy said, The Inheritors by William Golding, his second published novel after Lord of the Flies. First released by Faber and Faber in 1955, and it's one of the titles on the list that Andy and I made when we had our very first backlisted meeting, and we were talking about books that we might like to feature. So I know exactly what we said, John. We said 
I can remember saying to you, like, if we did William Golding, we could do any of his books except Lord of the Flies. <laughs> that was, and then we said, but if we did it, wouldn't it be amazing if we did The Inheritors? Indeed. And so here we are. And here we are. Time later. Five years later. Anyway, before we slip into the dappled prelapsarian woodland uh, of that novel, uh, Andy, what have you been reading this week? I've been reading a book called Square Haunting by Francesca Wade, uh, which was published by Faber at the start of this year. Um, subtitle Five Women, Freedom and London Between the Wars. Francesca Wade has set this book, uh, non-fiction, in Mecklenburg Square in London uh, on the fringe of Bloomsbury, physically and arguably uh, symbolically. And Mecklenburg Square was a place with a sort of a base of academics, feminist activists, uh, art artists, bohemians, and among those were five women, the five women that she focuses on in this book. And they were H.D., the modernist poet, Dorothy L. Sayers, detective novelist, translator of Dante and much more besides, Jane Ellen Harrison, classicist and translator, Eileen Power, historian, broadcaster and pacifist, and last but by no means least, some woman called Virginia Woolf. And there is no one scene in the book where all five of those women meet. But at various points, they either come close to sharing a flat, meet somewhere, pass in the street. And what the book is really about, I think, is women in that era forging their way to find a space where they could work and live independently. So to make the obvious comparison, where they could find rooms of their own from which they could go out and thrive as people. Um, so it's a group biography. It's clearly a literary biography if you are interested in um, HD or Dorothy L. Sayers or Virginia Woolf, or Hope Murleys. There's a woman called Hope Murleys, who, Una, I assume you know a bit about Hope Murleys, or a lot about Hope Murleys, partly because of her reputation as a fantasy novelist. Yeah, I think the novel of hers that stayed in print was uh, Lud in the Mist, which is a, a very uh, joyful and um, a bit like Rossetti's Goblin Market, actually. That stayed in print. It was sort of very well known uh, amongst science fiction and fantasy uh, readers. And then at the same time, uh, she's kind of being rediscovered as a, a modernist poet, particularly that her 1919 poem, Paris, which has just been reissued, hasn't it, by, um, by Faber? Yeah. Yeah, I've just read it. I, I've just read it. One of the things I wanted to say about Square Haunting is apart from the fact that it's extremely enjoyable, mm. well-written, informative, um, thoughtful book in its own right, like several other books I've talked about in the last few episodes of that listed, like Romantic Moderns, like John Piper's Brighton Aquatints. It's also a book that gives you loads of other things that you that you want to read. I mean, I jotted down half a dozen things immediately I finished that I thought I really want to try and catch up with that. 
So Lud in the Mist, which was reissued about 18 months, two years ago, 18 months ago. I think it's it's pretty much stays in print. I think Gollinks have got it, haven't they, in their, yeah. their sort of fantasy range. But this edition of Paris is, and if you haven't read Paris, it's just... it's ama- No, it's incredible. amazing. I was just going to say, absolutely incredible. Just been republished by Faber. Mm. So you, that's widely available in print with a full commentary built into it as well. It's hard to think that T.S. Eliot hadn't read it when he wrote The Wasteland. And it describes a walk... Uh, by a flaneurs um, across Paris at a specific historical um, social moment. I found that really uh, exciting to read. And I also read Between the Acts, which I talk about on the last lot list that we recorded by Virginia Woolf. So I'm not going to read anything from um, Square Haunting because I don't think I nearly need to. I think, um, you know, this has come praised by... Sarah Bakewell and Edmund Gordon and Sally Rooney and all sorts of people. It's just come out in the States. Um, And it's one of those lovely books that kind of transcends genres, really. It kind of manages to do that thing about being deep and chatty. That's a good trick if you can pull it off. And that's what Francesca Wade has done here. Uh, John, what have you been reading this week? So the book I'm going to talk about hasn't been published yet. It's called Staying Human. And it's the fourth in a series of now pretty legendary anthologies produced by the independent UK independent poetry publisher Blood Axe. Uh, started in 2002 with a, a volume called uh, Staying Alive, which went on to sell, I mean, more than any other anthology of that year, probably of any year. It's sold over 140,000 mm. copies, I think, in the UK alone. And there have been two subsequent volumes, uh, Being Human, Being Alive, and now this volume staying human and the reason i'm talking about it before it's been published is that we've joined forces unbound have joined forces with blood axe to uh to offer a pre-order deal to people um blood axe like a lot of independent publishers have suffered badly as a result of covid and this book is scheduled to be published on october the 1st national poetry day and they really need to get as many orders in as they can, uh, and they're using Unbound, uh, the Unbound website, to do that, to make sure they can get enough money in to make the uh, publication date of the 1st of October viable. So not only will you get the most brilliant collection of poetry, uh, it, these are wonderful, um, wonderful, wonderful anthologies from poets taken from all over the world, 500 poems from all over the world, um, addressing the world as it stands at the moment. So uh, they're inspiring. Um, they are political. They are uh, there are love poems. There's every really the whole of human emotion is um, is covered by them. There are even some poems, and I'm going to read one uh, in, in a moment that that get right up to date and talk about life under lockdown, um, post COVID life. Yeah, long before I think people were talking about poetry for, as a sort of pharmacy, uh, these books were the books that people gave one another as gifts mm. for comfort and solace, but also for inspiration. They're so international, so rich. I discovered more poets, I think, through these anthologies than any other, because Neil Astley, the editor, the founder of Blood Axe, is such a careful and uh, sensitive editor. So um, some of the poets that that you'll you'll find have been have been featured on um, on Backlisted before. Fiona Benson, um, Jay Bernard, um, Raymond Antrobus, 
but uh, also if you're if you you know want to answer that question what is it i can do how can i how can i read more writers of color how can i read more interesting black writers there's an amazing collection here from uk writers like roger robinson and kwame dawes and jackie Kay and malika booker and zvisa benson to amazing uh, American writers, uh, famous ones like Audre Lorde and Claudia Rankin, Wanda Coleman, but also new generation, Danes Smith, Jericho Brown, Joshua Bennett, Terence Hayes. It's a really, really rich, yeah. rich thing. So before you read the poem, how can people support Blood Axe and support this book happening? If you go on to Unbound uh, and look for Staying Alive and pledge for it, you can get obviously a paperback, um, and the ebook bundled together. But they're also, for the first time ever, they're doing a beautiful um, hardback version of the book for £50, um, which will have mm. head and tail bands and, uh, and, and, and be uh, something to keep and treasure. So help Blood Axe, uh, educate yourself about poetry, discover an amazing collection of poets that you might otherwise not hear, um, and give it as gifts to friends. So I'm going to read one poem from the book uh, by the uh, British poet, uh, Pakistani-born British poet, Imtiaz Dhaka, who, who happens to be published by Blood Axe and uh, famously was one of those poets who was considered for the um, laureateship. She didn't take it, but she continues to produce, I think, really beautiful and important work. And this is called Crane's Lean In, and it was written on 22nd of March 2020, the Barbican London, uh, that I think you remember is the day before uh, full lockdown. So cranes lean in. Cranes lean in, waiting for an all clear that will not come. Forehead pressed to glass, phone at my ear. I learn to sail on your voice over a sadness of building sites, past King's Cross, St Pancras, to the place where you are. You say nothing is too far. Mothers will find their daughters Strangers will be neighbours, even saviours will have names. You are all flame in a red dress. Petals brush my face. You say at last that cherry blossom has arrived, as if that is what we were really waiting for. Thanks. There you go. Uh, Staying Alive, edited by Neil Astley, published by Blood Axe, out on uh, the first of October, but uh, you can pre-order a copy on Unbound now. We'll pick this up again after some marvellously witty and interesting adverts. I think we should now, as Andrew and Una have been good enough to answer the blast on the backlisted conch shell <laughs> and <laughs> arrived here uh, to be ritually killed by us later. No, to, uh, <laughs> to, um, to discuss The Inheritors by William Golding. But I, I, I'd like to ask them both first. Um, the Inheritors was William Golding's second novel, published in 1955, only a year after, more or less, after the publication of Lord of the Flies, written First draft written in less than a month, uh, finished in four months, and the same four months in which Golding also wrote Pincher Martin. Uh, Dr. McCormack, even by your standards, that's prolific. <laughs> that's sickening, actually. That's absolutely <laughs> sickening. 
If I could, I mean, I, I can write a book in uh, four months, but I can't write The Inheritors. <laughs> Una, can you remember when you... Well, it's almost an impossible question yeah, because it's so ingrained in all our lives and in the culture we've grown up in. But can you remember when you first might have read Golding or Lord of the Flies? Well, the, the only Golding I had read before reading for this was Lord of the Flies. And, um, oh, I guess along with everyone else, I must have been, it, it, it must have been a book that was set at school or a, a book that was being passed around school or a book that you felt you had to tick off in some way. But that was all that I had read. And my perception of Golding was, oh, no, I had read The Pyramid. I'd read The Pyramid for, for a reading group. I'd, I'd bounced off it slightly. Um, but my perception was, was sort of... Um, uh, C books. I think I sort of had it, uh, you know, a kind of hierarchy with um, uh, Horatio Hornblower or Master and Commander Patrick O'Brien, something like that, but a bit, a bit more pitch literary. And then when I opened this, I kind of went, oh, <laughs> okay, uh, hand me the rest of them immediately. Uh, I'll, I'll read those. So, um, uh, and I think the reason I did was because I opened them within three pages. I went, oh, he's a science fiction writer. Oh, okay. All right. So I, I all right, I know where I am now. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna explore that. But did you not feel that when you opened Lord of the Flies? Uh, no. Well, I was a much younger reader for one thing, so I was probably about what fourteen or fifteen or sixteen. So uh, um, I, I wouldn't have been reading it as 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 intelligently, I think, and possibly an obligation to read. And you never like books that are set for you, do you? So, uh, but no, I I hadn't I hadn't sort of I hadn't sort of twigged it because whenever you get asked, you know, oh, it's a science fiction writer ever won the Nobel. And you go, well, Doris Lessing. Um, and they go, okay, all right, Golding as well. I, I just hadn't realised. Really interesting response. We'll come, I want to come back yeah. to this. And, but, Andrew, let me, let me ask you, can you remember when you might first have read anything by William Golding? Absolutely. It was for my O-level. So I remember reading numerous mock O-level questions about Lord of the Flies, and I did my English... Literature, one of my English literature questions was on Lord of the Flies. And the weird thing about that is, because it's kind of related to how The Inheritors is similar but different to Lord of the Flies, one of the questions that always came up in the mock O-level and mock o and all the O-level papers was how would you describe the island in Lord <sighs> of the Flies in terms, in terms of its geography? And... The reason why I think that's important was well, two reasons, really. One, it was the question I always avoided because I was terrible at geography and, and scared of that question. But the point is, it's basically saying how brilliant Golding maps the island and it gives you a sense of space so you know where you are right. at every point in the book. And I think when we move on to what's different about the inheritors and maybe why the inheritors is not so much of an easy in, I think that's an important point. It's it's about his ability to manage space and geography and what he holds back in the inheritors in terms of what he gives you in Lord of the Flies. And you told me a thing about, which I, I wonder if you would pass on to the listeners, about when you read the inheritors, um, you had a kind of like a double take with it, didn't you? It's an important thing is to do with the perspective shift at the end of the inheritors. And we all, we've already had a perspective shift at the end of Lord of the Flies when you move from the children's world to the naval officer arriving and how the naval officer suddenly sees the children and you realise it's a completely different world. But you mentioned to me something about the ending. 
So I was prepared for there to be an ending. I was waiting for this change at the ending. And I read it and I go, oh, it's exactly like the ending of Lord of the Flies. There's a perspective shift. You move from one world into another world. And I thought, it's a nice trick, but that's all it is. And I finished the book about half 11 at night. I just, you know, plowed through those final pages. And so I went to sleep. And then I woke up and it was literally like that, you know, the gif of the guy's mind exploding. <laughs> it was literally, it was literally like that. I suddenly, that perspective shift picked up meaning and it had ripples and it grew and it grew. And I was just thinking, how the hell did he do that? Yeah. That is astonishing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I and I couldn't think about anything else other than the, the numerous different levels upon how, on um, the way that ending works. Before I go to John, Nikki, I think it's right. I'm right in saying, aren't I, that um, you've owned a copy of The Inheritors for many years? <laughs> yes, it's been with me for some time. Uh, it's been on my shelf since I was 20. Uh, only I don't hadn't ten actually, years. Uh, only 10 years ago, yeah. yeah, little, yeah. Uh, thanks, thanks, Andrew. Uh, no, yeah, but I didn't. The problem is I thought that meant I'd read it. But, um <laughs> It turned out that I hadn't read it. I just had it with me from house to house to house for 25 years. And has the experience of reading it changed how you feel about it as opposed to it just being on the shelf? Yes, I'm quite proud of the fact that I've read it. Now I'm going to look at it and think, I've read that little baby, that little spine. I've actually, I know what it's about. There's actually got a sticker inside with my mum's name on it which is how I can date it because she hasn't lived in that house for a very long time and now I'm going to cross out that sticker now it's finally you finally own it you've you've inherited it properly <laughs> and um oh, let's see what you did there John okay but I'm coming to you because when did you first read the inheritors so I first read the inheritors I guess I would have been 17 and it um it'd be fair to say that at the time it blew me away um because it was I was fascinated as a kid, always been fascinated as a kid. I got a ladybird book, Stone Age Man in Britain. And I used to spend my weekends, loved going, look, looking for arrowheads. And I think very early on, I got this idea that there was this strange tension between Homo sapiens and Neanderthal. I became quite interested in the Neanderthal. Like everybody else, I had to read Lord of the Flies at school. We all remember it. But I, I picked up that he'd written a novel about Neanderthals. So I read the book. And as I say, it... it I can't say I understood all of it. I can't say it didn't take me quite some time. But the language and the story is one of my holy books. It's, it's a bit like we, we may probably talk about Ridley Walker later. It was one of those books that I feel somehow was written out of something already inside me. And the, the reason I, uh, that it became even more famous for me is I, I fairly obviously, when you read this book, you think, what happened? Why did they die out? And what happened? Was it? And I... I'm afraid in one biology lesson, I was being told that by my biology teacher, there was no evidence um, that there had been interbreeding. And I got up and I said, I, I, th I, I said, imaginatively and on every other level, I think that's absolute nonsense. It must be nonsense. I discovered one brilliant fact is that a female Neanderthal, apparently they were stronger. They had twice as much upper body strength as a homo sapien male. And I thought, well, if there's a group of, Home, uh, Neanderthal women, as it were, in the next valley. <laughs> you 
you're going to want to go and check them out. It's just, it's just, it is as as Golding would say, it's human nature. So this idea that if we lived side by side and didn't interbreed in Europe for 40,000 years, it seemed t- totally implausible. Anyway, he publicly humiliated me in front of the class, and then years later, obviously, of course, uh, science has now proven that uh, that that other than in sub-Saharan Africa, almost everybody on the planet, except in sub-Saharan Africa, has somewhere between 2 and 4% Neanderthal DNA, which is very likely to have been through inbreeding. So, so I was right. What was that? T- and what was Golding that t- was right. What was that teacher's name? <laughs> you know your, your Alan Partridge moment is here. God, what was that teacher's he was, name? He was called Mr. Watson. And actually, ah, he was... A t- ah, Watson. He was... He was he was on many levels. He was a biology teacher. On many levels, he was very good, and he was just he was just spouting the party line. But it it taught me it taught me actually sometimes because of course famously, we'll probably talk about this again. This book is not based on on deep research into Neanderthals, and in fact, Charles Monteith, who we'll talk about, the editor at Faber, said, you know, had there been had he sent it out to paleoarchaeologists, it probably would have inhibited uh, Golding's ability to tell the story. But there is a truth about it, the truth that he captures and the, 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 the genius of the novel is sort of more true than, in some ways, more true that it took the science 30 years to catch up with it. So that's one of the reasons it's important to me. OK, so I've got the blurb here from the original first edition Dust Jacket. So this was written by Golding and Charles Monteith in 1955. And bear in mind what everything that we've just been saying uh, about what a challenging book this can be the first time you read it. Um, And we should also add that Lord of the Flies had been published to a sort of... It did okay, right. It did okay. And they were sufficiently keen on it to, to... to get another book out of that author quickly. But you're still trying to place the author and you're trying to place the book in 1955, where people don't really know what Lord of the Flies is. So here we go. When the spring came, the people, what was left of them, moved back by the old paths from the sea, across the river to the steep places and the waterfall and the island where they had never been and to the cave. But this year, strange things were happening, things that had never happened before, terrifying things. There were inexplicable sounds and smells, unimaginable creatures half glimpsed through the close curtain of spring leaves, new creatures, men. Though they did not know it yet, though they were never really to know it, the day of the people was over. It had ended a long time ago. This novel is a vivid evocation of the world before history, of man's predecessors and of man's entry into his inheritance. Its characters are almost unbelievably real and alive and their story is as deeply moving as it is compellingly exciting. William Golding is the author of Lord of the Flies, which when it was published in 1954 had one of the most remarkable and enthusiastic receptions given to a first novel in recent years. The Inheritors is a worthy successor. Like Lord of the Flies, it is distinguished by superbly good writing, great narrative skill, and above all, vivid and profound imagination. Drawing on Jacket by Anthony Gross. 
I think that's worthy of a claim, that blurb. It's a very, very good blurb, isn't it? Do you know what's interesting? They've basically, for the most recent version of uh, The Inheritors, they've basically kept an edited version of that original blurb on the back. Yeah. It didn't, the Inheritors uh, didn't receive many re- contemporary reviews, uh, but it, did, it was reviewed in The Times in a roundup, and here's the review of it in the roundup. <laughs> Mr. William Golding goes further back in time, back to the period when Neanderthal man was giving way to man. It is hard to make characters called Locke, Uar, and Far of any passionate interest, although Mr. Golding has a keen eye for creatures and landscapes that no longer exist. Perhaps it is wiser to keep Neanderthal man behind the bars of an outline of history rather than to encourage him to run wild through luxurious forests of imaginative prose. Wow. (laughs) That's one of those reviews that if I had written this book, which I should not have done, I would not have written it like this. (laughs) But isn't that almost exactly what the American publishers say when they turn the book down? Because they, you know, they, they say, oh, God, first school children are now cavemen. Well, Monteith, you know. Monteith, actually, when he first got the manuscript, he says, that evening I started to read it and after two pages put it down, filled with intense and utter dismay. Oh, God, I said to myself, <laughs> first it was schoolboys, now it's cavemen. It. Yes. <laughs> Bloody <Yeah>. cavemen. <laughs> but I took it up again and apart from a hurried supper, didn't put it down until I'd finished it. It was another masterpiece. And actually, it does begin to... So Arthur Kirstler uh, famously says that it gave him the impression of an earthquake in the petrified forests of the English novel in the Sunday Times. And John Davenport also says, you know, this is he, he's the most purely original English novelist of the last decade. So he gets a kind of... He does get literary acclaim. But it doesn't get published in the US. No, and the, in the US, Faber do a terrible thing. They allow, um, I think it's Harcourt Brace to... To, um, to 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 not publish it, they don't, and then won't give it to anybody else. Well, we're talking about Charles Monteith. Charles Monteith is the editor uh, later, uh, one of the directors of Faber and Faber, who famously, after Lord of the Flies had been rejected two dozen times by other publishers, picked it up off the slush pile in his third or fourth week working at Faber and Faber, recognised something in it, worked with Golding on it. That story is very well told, but I thought you'd just like to hear a little clip of Charles Monteith himself describing it. Every Tuesday morning, a professional reading lady came in, and we'll call her Miss Parkinson. That's not a real name. And Miss Parkinson was a terrifying figure to us because she was said to have an eagle eye, have incredible shrewdness, and she had also a great gift for summing up a book in a telling phrase and was a great guide to us poor amateurish creatures from we, and that's about four editors, came in the afternoon. Now, I picked up this very unappetizing-looking manuscript, and Miss Parkinson had looked through it, and she wrote a terse comment at the top, which said, rubbish about boys and a desert island reject. <laughs> she, actually said, she actually said considerably worse than that, but we, we, won't, we won't dwell on it. I wanted to just make the point about the two reasons why Charles Monteith was such a, an extraordinary editor. The first is not... The first is he discovered Golding and he discovered Lord of the Flies. And the first point I wanted to make was you have to remember that he was own that Golding's great piece of luck was not merely that he found it, but that Monteith had only been doing that job a few weeks. Because if Monteith had been working at Faber for even a couple of years, he wouldn't have been digging into the slush pile looking for books. So there's every possibility that it would have stayed in the slush pile with the other 
rejections. It had been rejected so widely. And the second thing to say about Monteith, brilliant editor, collaborator with Golding throughout his whole career, when Golding needed help. And with the inheritors, Monteith's genius is he reads the inheritors, as you were just saying, John, and he recognises that it doesn't really need anything doing to it. It just So whereas Lord of the Flies had needed all this extra work, on the other hand, Golding writes the inheritors pretty much in less than a month, hands it in, and Monteith has got the, the, the eye to be able to go, we can publish this. This is a masterpiece. But also, I think the, the point that um, John makes as well, that if, he had, if it had gone for changes and if it had have kind of gone to experts, then probably Golding would have crumbled. He could have all, he already saw that aspect in Golding's character yeah. I mean, as well. The, 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 I mean, it's a really good point, Andy, you say about the, the, the newness in the job. I mean, I always use, as I'm sure, it's such a famous story, Lord of, Lord of the Flies, that uh, he noticed that the, the first 20 pages of the manuscript were kind of thumbed and yellowed and the rest of it hadn't didn't look like it had been and and actually what 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 there is at the beginning of the book of the original manuscript was is this kind of rather lurid uh, uh, a kind of a description of of a nuclear war and the aftermath of a nuclear war which is the preamble to, to before they get to the island and monteith did that thing that it's very easy not to do he read beyond that and read into the story and could see that by by actually by taking the beginning out and moving things around, he could. There was actually a brilliant story to tell. So, it's one of those things when you you're, you're kind of talking to junior editors, don't just read the first forty pages of anything. Mm. Una, I was. I want to pick up what you were saying when we when we started about this being a science fiction novel, the inheritors being a science fiction novel, or, or Lord of the Flies for that matter being a science fiction novel. The Inheritance was, was also reviewed in the TLS, although some months after it was published, and it was reviewed in a joint review with, do you know what? Go on. The Chrysalids by John Wyndham. Yeah, I can, straight there, isn't it? Yeah. And, and Golden gets a good review and Wyndham gets a less good review mm. in, in that instance. We know that Golding was a big science fiction reader, right? Yeah, complete addict. So why don't, we, so why don't we think of these books as science fiction? Um, well, I think there's obviously there's obviously questions of kind of snobbery around genre, which is which is unfortunate. That's just a shame. I think science fiction as a genre changes significantly in in the '60s, and uh, it starts to diverge uh, from literary fiction. But there just seems to be a straight line for me from Wells, who is the epigram in this book. He, he quotes Wells, and you know he's responding to a, a sort of fictionalized essay by Wells called The Grizzly Ones about the Neanderthals. There's a line for me straight from Wells through Golding to people like J.G. Ballard and Nigel Neal. And then if you opened a book by Christopher Priest or Chris Beckett, you've just got an absolute straight line there, I think, of literary British science fiction. And somewhere along the lines, I think um, uh, people lose their courage over science fiction they they stop reading it they stop they stop thinking of it as literary and some people carry on but the minute I opened this I, 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 I read a few pages and I went oh now I know why Andy's asked me <laughs> okay all right he's he's not the ship guy <laughs> okay because it does those two things that science fiction does it does estrangement you're immediately immersed in this completely alien perspective and science fiction does that straight away. Now, this is one reason people don't like it, actually, is that they, they don't want to have to decode a book 
They don't want to sit down with a book mm. and go, ah, oh, today I need to be an anthropologist. Mm. And you do mm. need to do that. You have to slow down and read at the pace of these people and, and start to unpick their, their otherness, their difference. So he does that. And then the other thing he does, and it's a classic science fiction, it's a first contact story. It's it's an encounter of one civilization with another. But 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 also it posits the uh, Homo sapiens are the aliens. Yep, that, absolutely. It's, it's an it's an alien invasion story with, yes, with the, and man is the alien. Man is, is the, the invader. Is seen through the eyes of the Neanderthals as an absolutely, invader. Absolutely. Yeah, and you're being asked to pull entirely into their perspective and to to live with them and be with them, to empathise, to find a, a common humanity or a common homininity, I don't know. <laughs> uh, and then the shock of realising who you are in the book at the end. On the, the sci-fi thing, I think you, you, that that continues into the next book as well with Pincher mm -hmm. Martin, because although it's ostensibly, you know, another shipwreck story, uh, the, the visions that he has, and then, of course, the brilliant twist at the end, which I won't give away if you haven't read Pincher Martin, but it's a big one. I even think, you you know, I was thinking this morning that the Spire, it's like a, spa it's like a spaceship. It's like, it's I, kind of like I 2000. I read the Spire as science fiction. I completely yeah. read it as science fiction. They're on a generation ship. They're, it's a tight crew of people in a hermetically sealed area. It's a bunker story. And they're, and they're trying yeah. to get they're trying to get the navigational system to work with a promise of a sort of goal that they'll eventually get to. It's incredible that the trappings that he takes and then reformulates them through I don't know Paradise Lost or uh, you know uh, Thucydides. And Una, Una, we you can you can prove this, can't you? You can prove this theorem because you discovered. Uh... You discovered an excerpt from. Um, I, I applaud your deep dive to bring back this pearl. Um, you found a Star Wars anecdote about William Golding. I did. This is great. Well, the the website, uh, Golding's website, is is incredibly well maintained. I think it's maintained by his daughter. Uh, her memoir of him actually is is it's superbly good. Wonderful. Really, really good. Um, but but bless them. On May the fourth. Uh, so, you know, may the fourth be with you on Star Wars Day. They posted this year, they posted this snippet. In his unpublished journals, William Golding writes that on Saturday, the 18th of September, 1982, he watched Star Wars six times with his <laughs> grandchildren. Star Wars is entrancing the grown-ups. However, by half past one in the afternoon, it has already been on three times. Four times, perhaps five times, I'm not sure. <laughs> Six times, which equals about 700 minutes. Hard to believe, but a fact. Judy Golding notes that he was particularly fond of the film's music and the Moss Eisley scene. Well, we're all fond of the Moss Eisley scene. <laughs> yeah. uh, in 1983, he tried to hire The Empire Strikes Back, but the film was not yet released on video. His response to that movie is not recorded. I I like to think he particularly liked, as we all do, the blue elephant uh, who plays the keyboards, <laughs> yes. whose name is whose name is Max something, isn't it? Oh no, you'll it know is, that. Yeah, I, I'm not so good on Star Wars. I'm bad to your knowledge, though. I was I was thinking more of the uh, appearance of Harrison Ford, of course. <laughs> all right, well let's let's go back to the book. Here's a a, a clip from the early nineties of the novelist Penelope Lively talking about uh, The Inheritors, a book that she's read and reread. 
I suppose I first read it maybe 20 years or so ago, and it's a book I read every five years or so. And I've often seen it as simply about the nature of evil. The last and sort of most recent reading, I saw it as in fact being a novel about contingency, about the direction in which human nature has gone, whereas it might have gone in a completely different direction, being as it is about the, the encounter between the Neanderthalers and a group who sound like uh, Stone Age men and are obviously Homo sapiens who wipe the lot of them out. And the suggestion seems to be that, but for the evolutionary twist, a whole other direction might have been taken, whereas, in fact, because Homo sapiens has this awful propensity for evil as well as this capacity for creativity, it's gone in, in our direction for better and for worse. It was a very risky thing to do, and, of course, the, the huge risk he took was in giving them language. As soon as he made them speak, he had to then use our assumptions and, and our way of seeing things. So this was the huge test that he, he put to himself. And, and uh, he had to then think of a way to give them the sort of capacities that would have been theirs rather than ours. So I think that's very interesting what she says at the end there about the imaginative leap that Golding has to make. He sets himself a challenge. And one of the things I found really exhilarating about reading this book is seeing somebody set themselves a seemingly impossible task and then pulling it off. I, I think there's a, there, is, there are sustained passages of uh, imaginative description in this as good as anything I've ever read. It, it, it really astonishingly well done and consistent on its own rules. Anthropologically correct, we, we don't know. But in terms of setting it, world building and in all senses, it's extraordinarily good. Una, do you have a, a bit you could um, read us so we can get a sense of that? Yes, I do. And I've, I've chosen a bit which is sort of a, a, a almost a creation myth. It's the old man, um, Marl, is, is talking to them. What I think is really clever, not just the world building and the language and the immersion, is uh, Golding's technique is so good that uh, when he chooses to come out of the tight focalization and give an editorial gloss, a kind of authorial gloss, uh, a kind of nudge to you, it, it's seamless. You, 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 you could go, oh, well, they wouldn't know that word or they wouldn't have that. Um, at, but it's so carefully crafted and carefully done. And those are almost the bits to worthless, those are the extra bits to worth listening out for, I think. But this is a moment where the old man is talking about the creation myth. Now, Mal spoke. There was the great oar. She brought forth the earth from her belly. She gave suck. The earth brought forth woman, and the woman brought forth the first man out of her belly. They listened to him in silence. They waited for more, for all that Mal knew. There was the picture of the time when there had been many people the story that they all liked so much of the time and it was summer all year round and the flowers and fruit hung on the same branch. There was also a long list of names that began at Mal and went back, choosing always the oldest man of the people at that time. But now he said nothing more. Locke sat between him and the wind. You are hungry, Mal. A man who is hungry is a cold man. He lifted up his mouth. When the sun comes back, 
We will get food. Stay by the fire, Mal. We will bring you food and you will be strong and warm. Then Far came and leaned her body against Mal so that three of them shut him in against the fire. He spoke to them between coughs. I have a picture of what is to be done. He bowed his head and looked into the ashes. The people waited. They could see how his life had stripped him. The long hairs on the brow were scanty and the curls that should have swept down of the slope of his skull had receded till there was a finger's breadth of naked and wrinkled skin above his brows. Under them the great eye hollows were deep and dark and the eyes in them dull and full of pain. Now he held up a hand and inspected the fingers closely. People must find food. People must find wood. He held his left fingers with the other hand. He gripped them tightly, as though the pressure would keep the ideas inside and under control. A finger for wood. A finger for food. He jerked his head and started again. A finger for ha, for far, for nil, for liku. He came to the end of his fingers and looked at the other hand, coughing softly. Ha stirred where he sat, but said nothing. Then Mal relaxed his brow and gave up. He bowed down his head and clasped his hands in the grey hair at the back of his neck. They heard in his voice how tired he was. Ha shall get wood from the forest. Nil will go with him and the new one. Ha stirred again and far moved her arm from the old man's shoulders, but Mal went on speaking. Locke will get food with Far and Liku. Ha spoke. Liku is too little to go on the mountain and out on the plain. Liku cried out, I will go with Locke. Ma, Mal muttered under his knees. I have spoken. Now the thing was settled, the people became restless. They knew in their bodies that something was wrong, yet the word had been said. When the word had been said, it was though the action was already alive in performance, and they worried. Ha clicked a stone aimlessly against the rock of the overhang, and Neil was moaning softly again. Only Locke, who had the fewest pictures, remembered the blinding pictures of Oa and her bounty that had set him dancing on the terrace. He jumped up and faced the people, and the nighter shook his curls. I shall bring that food in my arms, he gestured hugely. So much food that I stagger. So, Far grinned at him. There is not as much food as that in the world. Mm. What struck me listening to that is a brilliant reading. Again, Dr McCormack, that's the other reason I ask you back. <laughs> the vocabulary is so plain <laughs> listening to that it's it's su such a sophisticated thing to be doing conceptually but furthermore with a really limited vocabulary it, the, the language is very simple and yet you're being asked to take on board very sophisticated concepts and I think also that he doesn't uh, trap himself into saying oh well I've set this these rules on my book I, I'm going to stick with them. There's that whole passage of description where we pull back from the perspective and he just lets that omniscient narrator come in. Words like scanty, inspecting the fingers. They're not going to have this in their mind. Mm -hmm. But Golding doesn't say, well, I've got to stay in 
uh, there's a very cruel review on Goodreads that goes, Doug, pick up book, Doug, get bored. And the book isn't like that at all. It's incredibly no. sophisticated. It would be like that if it were no good. Yeah. And it, yeah. But it's a mark of how good it is that it isn't like that. Exactly that. I think what people struggle with, and maybe what people struggled with at the time, what people still struggle with, is the idea that it's a book without what we take as common in literature, which is kind of intellectual contemplation. You know, you've basically got this confused being who does not think as we do. So going back to what Una was saying about the familiar made strange, it's the familiar made strange on two levels. You're, you're experiencing, experiencing it through Locke, but also you're experiencing it through Golding. And he... He basically says, you know, as you were saying, Andy, with incredibly simple language, he does something incredibly complicated and it conveys that their experience of the world is predominantly external. The book relies heavily on description, you know, and there's none of this, there's hardly any contemplation or internal reflection, things that we're used to in the novel. And I think that's a real problem for people when they're reading it initially. But it, it is the key to the novel. So he, so Golding has, you know, before Lord of the Flies, he writes three novels that don't get published, and he says they're right to get, not get published because they're not, they're not books that are really about, they're not books that are coming out of me. In Lord of the Flies, which started as a sort of uh, a, a kind of out of reading books to his kids about islands, he was reading lots and lots of books that were set on islands. It came out of that immediate imaginative kind of uh, what would it be like. And you feel this with the inheritors as well. Uh, Golding didn't read contemporary fiction. He read Greek literature in Greek. That was what that was what sort of fed his imagination. There's a wonderful line he says about Greek, Greek language. He says it's transparency. He says the words seem to lie right against the face of real things. And you feel with the language that he uses for the for the for the Neanderthals, the people in the inheritors, as you say, Andy, it's not fancy language, and it's not crucially. They they imagine, but they don't think, they don't reflect. He, and in fact, the whole his whole kind of idea of the fall, which is the thing that he goes back to, that that you know original sin. What where, uh, in a way that it, it is a prelapsarian world. The Neanderthal, unlike Homo sapiens, unlike the the the, the people who uh, who destroy them, uh, don't have that. And to try and do that in language and not, as you say, to make it kind of. To, to not make it well, sort of sub stig of the dump. Kitsch, if, if it were it's kitsch, incredible, if it were failed seriousness, yeah. uh, you know the, the the definition of kitsch, you 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 couldn't. The whole thing would collapse incredibly yeah. quickly. There's such a there's such a pathos to it, such a tra uh, hopelessness almost yeah. to it, such a tragedy. I, the word I and, always the word I thought all the time as I was reading it was desolation. Um, yeah, you know. And there's something I think what's so uh, lovely, but and, and another reason why it works is it's it's very self-deprecating, and then they're not they're not they're not talking grunt. There's something extremely um, contemporary about Locke, who's sort of a a clueless man yeah. bumbling around in a situation that's just beyond his comprehension. Uh, I, you know, I sympathise with that. <laughs> but he's he's I think one of the reasons for that is because he's also golden. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Think yeah. He, you know, I think I think Golding part of Golding is is Locke, mm. but also I think the, the the tragedy of it is Golding also recognizes something of himself in in the new people as well. Brilliant, yeah. 
in John Kerry's biography of Golding, which is an excellent uh, biography, there's a very moving bit very, really near the end of the book where he describes Ted Hughes reading from the inheritors at Golding's memorial service in Salisbury Cathedral. Salisbury Cathedral, of course, adjacent to the school where Golding taught for many years, also the 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 building that with its now infamous spire uh, that had uh, had um uh, inspired oh god my I, this is a terrible inspired the spire terrible um, but um anyway he talks about ted hughes uh reading from the inheritors and then um i discovered that hughes had written an essay about the inheritors, which was published in a book called William Golding, a tribute on his 75th birthday. And uh, Hughes' essay is called Baboons and Neanderthals, a rereading of the inheritors. And it's very Teddish, but it has this little passage in it. And I wanted to share this with people because it ties in with um, what both Una and Andrew were, were saying a moment ago. Ted Hughes writes, Our final impression when we read The Inheritors is of a comfortless judgment for the Cro-Magnon, but for the Neanderthals, authentic tragedy. The total effect is beautiful, powerful, and objective, but its real impact derives from the story's vitality as a symbol a visionary dream projected from a calamity which is happening at this moment in the inner life of the reader before, during, and after his reading. One can hardly imagine how this private trauma could be touched more directly. And he goes on to say, in spite of their brutish fate, Locke and Farr live like saintly defectives In that other kingdom of our duality, even their suffering is a kind of awful joy, as Golding takes pains to show, as if this joy were merely the feeling tone of the fully operational body of instinct and the senses, of a perfect fittedness to the world's and the self's reality. By comparison, the rejoicing of the Cro-Magnons, of the humans, seems debased ugly, meaningless, artificial, desperate, pitiable. I thought that was very powerful. That's amazing, isn't it? I thought that was very powerful and and ties into so many of the things you were talking about. So right. That terrible line uh, where they say, you know, what else could we have done when they're sailing away, the humans? What else could we have done? It's, It's... God, it's a brilliant novel. So, so um, <laughs> the success of Lord of the Flies allowed William Golding eventually to give up his day job, but in fact, he didn't do so for many years because the sales of Lord of the Flies didn't come through straight away. And, he, and, and to add to the 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 uh, how our uh, the extent to which our jewels drop when we consider the inheritors, he wrote it in a month during at school while he should have been teaching kids. Yeah, he went in, off in to his the broom dinner hour. Yeah. In his dinner hour, right. So here's a clip from the South Bank show in 1980 um, with uh, Melvin Bragg asking William Golding about uh, giving up the day job. Lord of the Flies was, a, as I remember, a almost 
instantaneous and a tremendous success critically and commercially. Did that commercial success enable you to quit school teaching? Yes, it did. And I, I, I'm still astonished at the situation. I really, really am astonished at it. I never thought it would happen to me. I always thought I would be a writer, but I never thought I'd make money at it. In fact, to hark back to my father, he impressed on me. I think almost one of the last things I remember about him is his impressing on me that no member of our family would ever make any money except by hard and honest work. <laughs> I've made it by light, delightful, and maybe dishonest work. I don't know. <laughs> light, light, delightful, and maybe dishonest work. Andrew, he, he, one of the things about Golding, Andrew, is that he, he had lived a full life before. He's in his early 40s when Lord hmm. of the Flies is is published and he, he's had a fairly tempestuous life really up to that up to that point he fought in the second world war he's part of the d-day landings mm. he'd been a teacher for many years he seems to have been depending on which pupil you listen to either a, a, a beguiling teacher or or a, a distant and and ineffectual one but he kept plugging away plugging away do you think that sense of the life lived exists in the fiction certainly in those first there's a there's a specter in all of his early books there's a sense of i mean right from the start in the inheritors there is a sense of foreboding there is a sense that there is something up ahead that will foul everything up and you get that in the spire as well and i always i kind of look at it and think this is you know, this is the depressive, this is the alcoholic in Golding writing, the sense that kind of all will not go well. And he and he creates it be- he creates it beautifully in the inheritors, this feeling right from the start, right from when the the rotting log has moved, that you know, the world is something bad is coming. And I feel that kind of Golding felt that in his own life, and you can and you can you can sense it in the early fiction as well. Um there's certainly the sense that Golding is channeling a lot of rage. There's a story in the biography. Yeah. Um, we fought at listeners over who was going to tell this, and I, 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 I drew the long or short straw uh, of, of Golding in uh, the 70s being invited to dinner with his friend, the writer Andrew Sinclair. Other guests included Harold Pinter and his wife, Vivian Merchant, and, and Gregory Peck. Andrew Sinclair had a puppet modelled on Bob Dylan, uh, which was in the Golding's room when they came to a dinner in 1971. As usual, Golding got very drunk, and the next morning Anne broke the news to Sinclair that her husband had destroyed the Bob Dylan puppet. (laughs) (laughs) He had woken in the middle of the night, attacked it under the impression that it was Satan, (laughs) and buried it in the back (laughs) garden. Sinclair subsequently retrieved it, and it still bears the marks of Golding's diabolic encounter. And that echoes apparently William Golding. William Golding loved music. He was a very talented musician, albeit a self-persecuting one. But he hated two forms of music. Nikki, do you know what they were? Mm. Pop music and show tunes. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> he was. That's why there's no musical of the inheritance. Right. He was fifty percent right. <laughs> yeah. I'd say. But what? 
but what's the line that Golding uses about booze in The Inheritors? It, it drew toward and it repelled. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That sums him up, doesn't it? Absolutely. You know, and it's such, that is such a tragic scene when they get drunk on the mead as well, because these two lovely Neanderthals are suddenly fighting. And it's heartbreaking. Cr- they become human for that for that brief they period. They become right? human. Well, it's, it's going back to the prelapsarian thing that John was saying. It's that it's the fall. That is their apple. Is the mead? Yeah. You know, when they they drink of the mead, that is the eating of the fruit of knowledge, isn't it? You know, it's heartbreaking. Did you not find it hard to read? <laughs> <laughs> she's been, Nikki, can you, can, Nikki gets yeah, down Nikki's, to the Nikki's question been, that... she's been I've been looking at her she's been drumming her fingers <laughs> on the desk she's been going yeah 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 but come on answer the main question I did. I think that, I had. I, I, I think, could read about thirty pages yeah, a day. Absolutely. I think you have to read it slowly. But I do think. Yeah. It, I mean, I know this sounds ridiculous for a book that you have to read slowly, but it it, it is a page turner. I mean, it, it is yeah. absolutely. You are so involved. I think in the in the story. I think Andrew is going to read us a bit, which is which is. I had to read this bit yeah. twice. And so this is perfect timing for what, for what Nikki was saying. But, I mean, but it also backs up the point that it's so rewarding yeah. once it clicks. I, I, we must, before you read it, Andrew, Nikki, did you, did you yeah. find it hard yeah, to Yeah, no, I did. I did. I, quite a lot of the time I thought I, I, I quite like to work out what is what he's meant to infer here. And I felt like, you know, going back a few times, as you said, I'd, I know something meaningful has happened, but I'm not quite sure what it is. You know what? No person left behind. <laughs> Nikki, that's how yeah, I felt okay. reading it, right? That I think Golding doesn't want you to understand everything. I think that's true in Pincher Martin and I think it's true in The Spire. Yeah. You know, yeah. And he- particularly here, it's replicating Locke's experience that your disorientation is Locke's bafflement with the world. Absolutely. That's part of the yeah. experience of the book. It's bewildering. You know, anyone who listens to Backlisted, you are like you are you are five you're a five star reader. We know that. That's why you're here, right? You've got skills, right? And, and <laughs> we know that. Top and skills. so, top skills. Yeah, top uh, skills. You're really good at reading. <laughs> otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to this, right? So, here is one of the most. Um, how can something simultaneously be so gripping? and mystifying. Andrew is going to read it to us. I should probably say that at this point, Locke is hunting for... It's his child. I know it's not explicit, but it's his child, isn't it? Liku, and who has been taken by the new people. We know this so far. The bushes twitched again. Locke steadied by the tree and gazed. A head and a chest faced him, half hidden. There were white bone things behind the leaves and hair. The man had white bone things above his eyes and under the mouth, so that his face was longer than a face should be. The man turned sideways in the bushes and looked at Locke along his shoulder. A stick rose upright and there was a lump of bone in the middle. Locke peered at the stick and the lump of bone and the small eyes in the bone things over the face. Suddenly, Locke understood that the man was holding the stick out to him, but neither he nor Locke could reach across the river. 
He would have laughed if it were not for the echo of the screaming in his head. The stick began to grow shorter at both ends. Then it shot out to full length again. The dead tree by Locke's ear acquired a voice. Plop! His ears twitched and he turned to the tree. By his face there had grown a twig. A twig that smelt of other and of goose and of the bitter berries that Locke's stomach told him he must not eat. This twig had a white bone at the end. There were hooks in the bone and sticky brown stuff hung in the crooks. His nose examined this stuff and did not like it. He smelled along the shaft of the twig. The leaves on the twig were red feathers and reminded him of goose. He was lost in a generalised astonishment and excitement. He was lost in a generalised astonishment in excitement. That's exactly what Una was talking about, isn't it? It's like yeah. that, that sudden intrusion, except it isn't intrusive, of Golding as, as reporter, allowing himself yeah. um, um, at the appropriate Yeah, reporter's word. right. I'd thought interpreter, but even then, he's, it's yeah, just a is nudge, good. isn't it? Just pay attention here. You want to go back yeah. and, and, and see this again. And are we going to say what just happened there? Or should we? Or should we leave it mysterious? That's, that's really. That's really your call. We've got Andy. top skills listeners, so uh... yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. They they're going to figure out. Some of them are going to be going easy. easy. Yeah, 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 Give yeah. us another. Actually, listening to that, I I think I spotted an extra nuance. Which I, should I should I say what's happened? Yeah, please um, go on. Yeah, yeah it, an arrow has been fired across the river, and he's no idea what's just happened to. Um, the little yeah. nuance. Technology sorry, man. I, technology man. Yeah. Um, yeah. uh, d- the little bit about the berries on it, which, uh, which the berries it mm. has, uh, has have they poisoned the arrow? Yeah, yeah. they've poisoned the, poison arrow, the yeah. arrow, and there's goose yeah. feather, obviously. Yeah, yeah. So that I hadn't noticed before. That's just uh, brilliant. It's the berries I don't eat. Can I read a very short passage? The very short passage on which I based my uh, confident teenage assertion that there had been interbreeding. This is this is just like this is just you working through your issues. Yes, please, please do. The <laughs> group you know, will the group will all hug you afterwards. <laughs> so, this there's a brilliant scene where uh, Locke and Far are watching the humans, and they watch them they watch them eat, and they watch them get drunk. And then uh, it being a gathering of humans, a couple stumble out, and uh, you you can see you can guess pretty clearly, I think, from this what they're doing. Um, the two people beneath the tree were making noises fiercely, as though they were quarrelling. In particular, the fat woman had begun to hoot like an owl, and Locke could hear Tuami gasping like a man who fights with an animal and does not think he will win. He looked down at them and saw that Tuami was not only lying with the fat woman, but eating her as well, for there was black blood running from the lobe of her ear. Locke was excited. He reached out and laid a hand on Far, but she had only to turn her eyes of stone upon him, and she was immediately surrounded by that same incomprehensible feeling, that worse-than-or feeling, which he recognised but could not understand. Excitement again. That's the key. He's turned on by... But turned on, but in a different he doesn't way understand the previous it. use of excitement yeah, yeah. that we just Absolutely. heard. You know? Yeah, exactly. Andre, you said at the start of this podcast that if The Inheritors were a Gene Kelly film, it would be Brigadoon. But you were reluctant to reveal why for fear of uh, spoiling the ending. But we're now in the safe zone where we can talk about the ending. 
why is why is this like Brigadoon? Well, I've got two things. Can can I also then talk about why the ending's so brilliant as well? I think so. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. But first, what Gene Kelly film is the inheritance? It's Brigadoon, because it's about the new people from New York, the interlopers arriving and destroying the lives of the magical land dwelling <laughs> innocents, and they bring something of hell with them. <laughs> That makes Brigadoon science fiction then, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, the Brigadoon is science fiction. Absolutely. That is brilliant, yeah. Andrew. Well done. Come back. Thank Come you. back again. Yeah. Every <laughs> time. <laughs> if you leap through that hoop, thank you. But seriously, the ending. The endings. Yeah. There are not one, but in fact, two changes of perspective at the end yeah. of this. The, the first change of perspective is that we no longer see Locke as Locke but we see him as the red creature, don't we? And he's dying. And the amazing thing I found about that is you, I suddenly realised, well, what a brilliant way to convey a, a sense of a life force leaving a body. Suddenly we are outside of Locke, but also Locke's life force, you realise, is Golding's writing. And once Golding leaves Locke to join the new people, which he clearly does with a sense of guilt and shame, as is his want, Locke dies. But Gold, and then Golding incriminates himself in all this. He basically says, I'm traveling with the new people now. I am with the murderers. You know, and it's just, it's astonishingly powerful. And it really, I mean, in terms of what we were saying about how heartbreaking this book is, that where you just see Locke as the tiny little red creature and running on all fours he just suddenly looks so pathetic and insignificant now that Golding has left him, now that Golding's writing has left him. Astonishing. What what I love about the the multiple point of view shifts, and Andy, this will please you, is that it, it violates a rule that you're taught in creative writing. Never change point of view. Forget it. Mm. Change it for exactly those reasons. I love that reading. I think that's fantastic that, that Golding is is leaving his creation behind and that's how it is the life force yeah. yeah and and at the same time though the the red imagery you, you it obviously it's suggesting Lascaux and the caves and that there'll be some afterlife yeah. in that the the other point of view switch novel that it reminded me of was um the point of view switch at the end of Cormac McCarthy's The Road but that's nowhere near as successful and I, and I think the book almost fails on it but the book succeeds on this it it's mm. it's that total immersion and then that mirroring that's done. It's just completely brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we have to wind up now. We do. Sadly. Mm. Yeah, um, I think we've we've run out of pictures to share. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you to Una and to Andrew for leading us through the tangled undergrowth. To Nikki Birch, as ever, for reconstructing these fragmented sounds and turning them into a euphonic whole and to Unbound for originally planting out the forest. You can download all 113 previous episodes, plus follow links, clips and suggestions for further reading by visiting our website at backlisted.fm. And we're always pleased if you contact us on Twitter and Facebook. You can also show your love directly by supporting our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. We started this to keep Backlisted afloat in uncertain times. We no longer get any money from anywhere else and we'd prefer not to have to have intrusive paid-for adverts. 
So even a small gesture of financial support helps. All patrons get to hear backlisted episodes early. And for the price of a brace of sourdough loaves, lot listeners get two extra lot listeds a month. That's the place where we talk, cry and swear in an unbuttoned way <laughs> about music, film, television, books and the stuff we love. Join us. Join us. You also get to hear your name <laughs> read out on the show with our heartfelt thanks. So this week's batch of lot listeners are... Uh, big thanks to Locke, to Ha, to <laughs> uh, Neil. Yeah, to Neil. No, Mal. unfortunately, they're they're no longer with us. One by one, they have yeah, been picked off. Sadly, <laughs> yeah. Uh, however, the Homo sapiens we would like to thank include John Bruin, Matthew Crowder, Caroline Lodge. Douglas Schatz, Elizabeth Card, Lee Farley, long-term listener Lee Farley. Thanks, Lee. John Simmons. Thanks, John. Gary Rigglesworth. Ian Archibeck, the great illustrator, supports us. Thank you, Ian. Thomas Carlson. I'm stopping so you can talk now. Oh, right. <laughs> Eddie Moore, Erskine, Anthony Waller, Richard Ewart, Sarah, Maria Gilioiva, Harry Prance, Mikey, Tim Riley. Mance Hirschfeld, the lovely Kate Staples. Lovely Kate Staples. Anne Tuvey, Eleanor Haworth, Joanne, Martin Kerner. Hello, Martin. Jennifer Tubbs, Mark McLaughlin, Peter Curran. Hello, Peter. Deirdre Davidson, hey. Liz McShee, Nicola Dodd. James McNamara. Thank you ever so much for listening. Thank you, uh, Una McCormack and Andrew Mayle for joining us under these particular circumstances and giving us so much of your time and energy. We really appreciate it. Can can you also thank um, Nico, my dog, for remaining quiet throughout your this whole beautiful podcast? dog. You're, thank you, Nico, <laughs> your beautiful dog. If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Lock Listed, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.